Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. It is one of the greatest goodbyes in all of, uh, all of Hollywood. And there have been some great goodbyes over the course of, um, of, of what cinema has, has given to us. Gone with the Wind, probably one of the most famous lines, I can't say in church, uh, from Gone with the Wind when Rhett is leaving and Scarlett's pleading with him. I think of the scene from Forrest Gump. I'll get a little more contemporary with some of you today. When Forrest is standing over Jenny's grave, And he is talking to Jenny and talking about Little Forest and how smart Little Forest is. And it's so cute when Little Forest writes a note to his mom and he says, I can't read it, so I'm just going to leave it with you, Jenny. It's it's, it's just precious, that that farewell scene that's there. Um, Then there's the scene at the end of Dead Poet Society. Remember the, the ending of Dead Poet Society when Robin Williams' character is packing up his bags, he's been fired, he's getting ready to leave, and, and all the guys in his class are sitting there and they're listening to this, this terrible lecture about whatever it is that they're talking about. At this point, it's irrelevant in the movie. And Robin Williams' character is leaving and, and that one student stands up on the desk, Oh, Captain, my Captain! And you start to get the, the goose pimples on your arms when, when that starts to happen. And then all the students in the class start looking around at each other and they all start standing up on the desk. Oh, captain, my captain. It's just such a, such a fantastic farewell. All these scenes and so many that are like them, you know how they feel. They hit you, as, as the contemporary vernacular would say, it hits you right in the feels, right? I mean, it just stirs up that, that emotional response of, I'll cry at a movie. I'm not afraid to own it. Uh, you know, there are movies that'll, that'll, that'll get me really good. And, and these farewells are these kind of movies that, you know, might just generate a, a little tear or two. Um, what happens when you combine an emotional story with really just a compelling acting and, and, and the compelling drama? You add that musical score. Uh, you know, you got to have the musical score because... Uh, it just doesn't work if you don't have that, that music just building in the background. And, and I don't know, you just can't help but get wrapped up in, in what's unfolding on the screen before you. We look at Acts chapter 20 today, and we find another emotional moment, another farewell that is worthy of our attention today. It is a, a highly emotional, highly dramatic moment, and it is a, it is a conclusion of a very dramatic storyline. The only thing missing from what we're about to read in Acts chapter 20 is that dramatic score. And so, Foster, I've asked you to compose something for us to play while I'm reading this. Did you get that right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. He kind of had a moment of, oh, no. Uh, You're missing the score. So as I read it, you almost have to supply it yourself because we don't have it to add. But you've got this dramatical farewell, this, this incredible story that's coming to a conclusion right here in Acts chapter 20. And so I want to read it this morning, but I want, as I read it, as we talk about it, I want you to have permission to allow your emotions to interact with this text. Sometimes we read the Bible clinically. We read the Bible as if it's, a, you know, it's just words on a page, it's a textbook, it's for, our, uh, it's for our, our intellectual growth. But I want to encourage, it's okay to let the Bible and interact with the text of the Bible with, with your emotions engaged. It's okay to read these stories and, and allow yourself to, to really imagine what the, the, the characters are, are facing because these aren't, these, aren't, these aren't fictional characters. 
These are real people with, with real stories, with real emotions. With, uh, it's very real. It's very raw. And so as I read this from Acts chapter 20 this morning, I want you to embrace what is one of the greatest goodbyes in the Bible and let your heart interact with it as we consider it today from Acts chapter 20. If you've got your Bible open to Acts chapter 20, I'd invite you to stand as I read from Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 17. Dr. Luke tells us this. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ." And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, these precious, precious words from the Apostle Paul. As he says farewell to a group of men that um, he spent a lot of time with and invested a lot of time in. God, I, I, I can only imagine what it's like to say goodbye to these people that he knows he may never see again. And so, Lord, I pray that as we consider the words of the text, that the emotions and the spirit of the text might also speak to us as well. God, I pray your blessings on your word as it's considered and preached today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Paul has turned his attention towards Jerusalem, but on his way, he finds himself making a, a little stop, um, a little layover, we might call it today. He makes a stop in the port city of Miletus, and it just so happens, if you look on a map, you'll see that it's really close to the city of Ephesus. And so Paul decides that with this stop to make the most of it, instead of just shopping at the airport gift store, he decides to, to schedule, a, schedule a meeting with, uh, with the people that he had spent so much time with there in Ephesus. He calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus. Who are these people? Well, these are the men. They were entrusted with the spiritual well-being of the church there. We would recognize them as the pastors of the church as well as the men in the church who were qualified to teach and to lead. And 
We understand, of course, this was a group that Paul would have worked really closely with. Uh, daily, even, Paul would have worked with these people and learning, uh, teaching them how to lead, teaching them how to teach and preach, teaching them how to, how to share the gospel and, and build this church there. It's likely a group that, even when you think about it, that Paul probably won many of them to the Lord that he was the one who would have shared the gospel with these folks, that they were the ones, that they were his direct spiritual children in many ways. And he recognized that he was seeing them for the very last time. Again, I, we don't have those, those moments much anymore where we, you know, we see those times happen in times of grief. You know, it happens when a relative is on hospice, and I invariably hear this, they've called the family in. When we know what that means, that means that that person, that loved one, is getting ready to pass on, and, and it's an opportunity for the family to come in and, and say, their, say their goodbyes, because in that moment, there's a sense that we won't see them again until we finish this life and join them in, the, in, the, um, in heaven with, uh, with the Lord. So goodbyes are tough, and goodbyes are even harder when we recognize we're not going to see those people again. Now, again, we live in social media world, so if you say goodbye, it's not really goodbye. Just get on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and you can, you can kind of stay in contact with people. But, but those of us who are older than Facebook, we remember what it was like. Uh, I remember my high school graduation. Uh, we didn't have Facebook back then. We didn't have social media. We didn't have, uh, barely had email at the time. And I remember at that graduation talking to people and recognizing that I may never see you again. I may never be around you again. I may never sit at a lunchroom table with you again. And we may never see each other again. And those are painful moments. Those are very painful moments. I've often said that the words of a dying man carry extra weight. When a man knows he's dying, he knows his words are few. And he gives great consideration to the impact of those words. But I think farewell words have a special kind of significance as well. Those, those words when you know you may not get to speak again into that person's life. And so here we have Paul's farewell words. And as I was looking through this text here in Acts chapter 20, it occurred to me that we could spend weeks really dissecting what he has to say. But this morning, I want to just extract a few of the little nuggets that are here in a text for our benefit today. The first nugget that I want to concentrate on this morning is this. What does Paul have to teach us about faithfulness? in this goodbye address. The first thing Paul teaches us about faithfulness is this. He demonstrated his faithfulness to Christ through his faithfulness to the church. Now, Paul's a missionary. No doubt he was a missionary, but he didn't operate like today's short-term missions do. We think of short-term missions today. We think of a mission trip today. Uh, a mission trip today means that we get a group of us together. We hop in a van, and maybe we go get on an airplane. We go to some foreign country, and we spend how long there? A week, 10 days. Then we get back on the airplane, we come back here, and we talk about the week that we spent in whatever place it is that we went to today. That's, that's how we often think about missions today. You have missionaries who are there all the time, and then you have church mission trips that, that go for a short amount of time, and usually we try to help the missionary that's there all the time. That's, that's how we think about missions today. But in Paul's day, missions didn't work that way. We're not talking about a week or two long trip in this regard. Paul set out on a missionary journey. And you get the real sense when Paul leaves to go on these journeys that there was no clear idea when he might get to come home. I mean, we send a team to a foreign country today, and we know when they're coming back, Lord willing. 
You know, we're, we're going to be at the airport to pick you up, to, you know, 10 days from now. We'll be there. When's your flight land? We know when you're coming home. Paul left to go on these mission journeys. There's no sense of when he was going to be home, which really speaks to his character, to be willing to go with no real idea of when he might get to come home again. So he sets out on this journey. We're told in verse 31, he tells us that he spent three years on his journey there in the city of Ephesus. Now, three years is a long time. We've only been in COVID world for two years, and for some of us, like, man, this has been an eternity. But Paul was there for three years. He was there for COVID plus a year, right? I mean, three years. He spent three years building the church. He, he spent three years equipping leaders. He spent three years breaking bread together. This was no week-long mission trip for the Apostle Paul. For three years, Paul invested in this new church before his calling moved him elsewhere. But for three years, Paul's faithfulness to Christ was evident by his faithfulness to the church there at Ephesus. Now, this serves a very important reminder for us today. We need to hear this constantly today. God has designed us as Christians for our Christian faith to be worked out in the context of the local church. That is God's desire and God's intention for us as believers today. I have been accused before of saying that you have to go to church to be a Christian. I have had that accusation leveled at me because I do place a very high priority on our participation in the body of Christ because the Bible places a high priority on our participation in the body of Christ. But I will say that any accusation that I think you have to go to church to be a Christian is unequivocally false. If that were true, then I would be making the gospel works-based. In order to be a Christian, you have to go to church. In order to go to church, that's how you become a Christian. That's not true. The gospel is not a works-based gospel. We receive the gospel freely. It is given to us, but there are consequences to our gospel profession. There are consequences to our conversion. There are consequences when we choose to give our life to Jesus. And one of those consequences is that God wants us to be part of this crazy thing we call the body of Christ, this crazy thing we call the church that's made up of a bunch of us crazy folks, right? We come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different races, all different socioeconomic classes. We come from all over the place. And God says, let me dump all y'all together in one group and let you figure out how to love, to love one another and work it out together. And that's what God calls us to. And on paper, it looks nuts. But in real life, it's pretty awesome. Because I have relationships with people that I would never have relationships with if it weren't for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have friendships that I would never have if it weren't for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know things about, about stuff that I'd never know about because I wouldn't be around those people who know those things if it weren't for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this, and I believe this is biblical. The Christian faith finds its most accurate, healthy expression when that faith is worked out in the community that we call the church. Now, again, we know that there are folks that never been to church before. They claim Christianity, but they don't go to church. And that's really weird how that would work itself out. Because here's the thing. Y'all, pray for pastor's wives because they are constant sources of sermon illustrations. But I love my wife, and I do my best to honor her when I talk about her from the pulpit. I don't have to live with my wife to be married to her. There are days that I'm kind of a slob that she probably wishes I didn't live with her. But as a married man, the healthiest expression of my marriage is when I share a home with my spouse. Right? 
I mean, it's not required on paper that I have to, I have to share a domicile with her in order to be married. That's not written down anywhere, but I also recognize that in order for my marriage to be healthy, I need to have that worked out in the context of sharing a home together and sharing a life together. That's how that works itself out. Gallup, the polling organization, says this. says that somewhere around 70% of Americans claim a religious affiliation. That's a lot. Uh, I don't know that I believe it. But only 47% claim to belong to a religious body. 70% claim religious affiliation. 47% claim that they belong to a religious body. Now, Gallup is talking about religion generally, not Christianity specifically. And anybody who studied Christians will tell you this, we are notoriously difficult to study because we will lie like the devil when we are asked a question on a poll. It's honest to goodness truth, because the pollster calls and says, do you go to church? And the Christian in you says, I better give the right answer, because Jesus is listening, right? And so we will lie on the polls, because we know the right answer, and we think that if we give the wrong answer, which is the truthful answer, that somehow or another it's going to come back to get us. And so pollsters will tell you Christians are incredibly difficult to count because we always give the right answer, not the truthful answer. So we don't actually have any way of knowing for sure how many professing Christians do or do not go to church. But what we do know, we can know anecdotally. Anecdotally, we all know that there are a ton of able-bodied people who claim to be Christian but who rarely, if ever, darken the doors of a local church. And I'm not talking about COVID and pandemic-related stuff. I'm not talking about that, because let's be honest, this was a problem before March of 2020. This was something that we saw happening before the pandemic ever gave us a reason to not come to church. Now, it is above my pay grade to judge the legitimacy of someone's faith. I can't determine whether somebody's a Christian or not. It's not, I, I don't have that ability But I can say this with 100% certainty, that the quality of someone's faith is lacking if they neglect the community of the faithful. I can say that with 100% certainty. Again, we're not talking about pandemics or plagues or politics. This is a problem long before those things ever happened. We're talking about priorities. And faithfulness, as Paul shows us here, is worked out best in the context of the local church. Secondly, Paul demonstrated to, he demonstrated his faithfulness to Christ by his faithfulness to the word. If you look at verses 20 through 21 here, Paul talks about how he didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that Paul's confidence is in the word of God. It wasn't something he hid from. It wasn't something that he tried to minimize in. As a matter of fact, you would see what Paul says here, that his commitment to the word is something that he maximized. I mean, that was his, his role, his job. He went house to house. He was constantly teaching people the word of God. It was something that he absolutely amplified. Interestingly enough, we live in a time when the Bible is more accessible than it's ever been. I would dare say that a majority, an overwhelming, a super majority of people in the room today have a Bible on you, even if you don't have a paper copy with you. If you have a phone in your pocket that can access any kind of internet, you have a Bible in your hand. There is an abundance of apps that you can put on your phone and your devices that contain Bibles. You can get to a free Bible on the web with fewer keystrokes than typing in someone's email address. 
that crazy? I mean, the simplest, like lowest bar entry of internet would send in an email. You can get to a Bible with fewer keystrokes than sending the email. Uh, like choose your favorite publication or your favorite Bible translation and probably put org at the end of it. And you can get to a free Bible just like that. However, last year, Barna found this. Listen to this. Bible's more accessible than ever before. Half of Americans look at the Bible fewer than two times each year. Half look at the Bible fewer than two times each year. Now, again, this is real low entry here because if you're here this morning and you even put forth the slightest bit of effort to open to Acts chapter 20, which I read, or you opened your phone and clicked on it, you already have gotten one of those taken care of, okay? So, I mean, that, again, we're talking real low entry. We're not talking about quiet time, devotion, scripture memory. We're talking about real low entry level stuff here. Half of our country looked at the Bible fewer than two times, and that includes all the people who didn't even open the book. Now, I'll say this. It's hard to be a Christian who's not part of a church. I think it's also hard to be a Christian that doesn't read his Bible. That's really hard to, to work that out. And, and again, I'm not just talking about during the sermon time or during your Sunday school class. As followers of Jesus, we ought to daily be engaging with the Word of God. That should be our, our daily. Again, I'm not somebody that is dogmatic, that you have to spend 30 minutes every single day at every single time doing this. You do what works for you. But we ought to at least be putting forth the effort to, to daily at least figure out how to plan and read and study God's Word. Work to make it a habit. We think of habits as bad. I bite my fingernails. That's a bad habit. There are also good habits. Work to develop that good habit. Of, make it part of your daily routine. My wife will tell you my mornings are pretty fairly well scripted from the moment I get out of bed. There are certain things that we do. We all do. But from that moment forward, there's, it's pretty scripted. I push brew on the coffee pot. While I'm brushing my teeth, the coffee's brewing. And then I grab that first cup of coffee. I sit down on the couch with my Bible and I read my Bible. That is my routine. That's how it works almost daily. And I'll tell you, when it, when it doesn't happen like that, the rest of my day is really discombobulated. And so I spend that time in the Word. I finish up. I close up. I finish that cup of coffee. There's something I think God has blessed the, the coffee and Bible. You know, the two things go, I mean, there is no better combination than coffee and Bible. Um, I mean, it's amazing. I finish that up, and then I go for a run or I go get on the bike. I do some sort of physical exercise. I mean, that is my, invariably, that is my, day, my morning routine. And I don't break from that hardly at all because it's just part, it's a habit. It's what I do. It's how I work. And if I don't get those things done in the morning, I understand that if I don't do those things during that 4 and 5 o'clock hour, I'm going to miss it the rest of the day because it's not going to happen at lunchtime. It's not going to happen after dinner. I'm going to tell you, at bedtime, you can forget it. I, I like my sleep. And so when the sun goes down, my circadian rhythm or whatever it's called starts saying, hey, buddy, the sun went down. You know what that means? And I'm, yes, I know exactly what it means. Now, some of you are better at night with this kind of thing. I'm not wired that way. My son texted me the other day. He had a, had a barbecue competition at work. And he texted me. He said he had to stay up all night long and man these smokers for this barbecue competition. He texted me. He said, Dad, I'm getting too old to stay up all night. <laughs> and I replied, son, I've never, I've never been that young. <laughs> uh, never. 
No all-nighters in college for this guy. I'd go to bed early, and I'd wake up super-duper early to get that studying in, but you're, I'd be worthless if I didn't get some sleep in. The point is not the timing. The point is the priority. You do what works for you. You make the timing what works best for you, but the point is you make it a priority because you have to make sure your commitment to Christ is reflected in your commitment to the Word of Christ. You're not going to know everything you need to know about Jesus if you're not spending time in His Word. Let's just be honest. Thirdly, Paul's faithfulness to Christ transcended his concerns for self. Look at verse 22. Paul says, Now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. You don't hear people talking like that, do you? Hey, what are you going to do this summer? You know, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to go to a place, and every inclination I get, the Holy Spirit keeps telling me that I'm going to go to this place for summer vacation, and when I get there, I'm going to be imprisoned, and I'm going to face affliction, and I'm going to have terrible, terrible circumstances when I get there this summer. Well, maybe you should make different summer plans, right? I mean, if, if, if going there tells you that your experience there is going to be this bad, well, go somewhere else, Right? But that's not how Paul thinks. Paul's ministry has been indicative of complete self-denial. If you remember back in chapter 9, verse 16, when Jesus first calls Saul and turns him into Paul, he says to Ananias back in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, Jesus said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And man, that's not what you want the Lord to say about you. Right? I mean, you don't want, I mean, you don't want Jesus' words to be, let me show you how miserable your life's going to be. That's what he said about Paul. That's what he, that was the characteristic of Paul's life from the moment that Jesus called him. Yet Paul never meets that suffering with any sense of resentment or disdain. He, re, he meets that suffering with, with an embrace of what it means for him. Because he understands that in that suffering, he's most like Jesus. And for Paul, being like Jesus, that is that ultimate goal for the Christian life, is being like Jesus. It's an incredible amount of self-denial. Everywhere that Paul writes about his trials, man, he's not afraid to write about them. He writes in such a way to remind us that his trials were actually for his good. And even his current situation where he's on his way to Jerusalem, he knows trouble is waiting for him there. Paul could have stayed on the mission field forever. Let that settle in. No one was telling him to go to Jerusalem. No one other than Christ was making it clear to him to go to Jerusalem. Paul could have gone to Ephesus he could have gone to Corinth. He could have gone to Philippi. He could have gone to Thessalonica. He could have gone to any of those towns where he had been, and he would have received a hero's welcome. He was their founder. He was the one that led so many of them to Christ. What a, what a place to, to retire in. That's not what Paul does. He could have stayed on the mission field forever. But Paul has a laser-sharp focus on accomplishing Jesus' plan for him, even if it hurts. You know, I was listening to an interview with Dennis Prager the other day. Dennis is a Jewish man. Um, but I found that Dennis oftentimes has his fingers on the pulse of a lot of what's wrong with culture today. Uh, he, he, he's got a lot, of, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of good thoughts about what's wrong with the world today. And he said, that, he said this, and it really struck me. He said that in our modern civilization, that in our modern American culture, one of the unseen motivators of our culture today is the avoidance of pain and suffering. And think about how that seems to be what motivates so much today. Now, 
That doesn't mean that we Christians are a bunch of psychopaths who go around looking for pain. Hey, you mind shoving something up under my fingernails? I'm having a pretty good day today. I mean, we don't do that. But Christians are called, listen, to find joy in our trials. We're called to be stewards of our suffering. And we recognize that somehow or another, God uses our suffering for the good of others. I don't know about you, but understanding that that God wants to use my suffering to help others helps to redeem that suffering a little bit. Well, I'm not going through this for for the heck of it. I'm going through this because God wants to use it for the good of somebody else. He wants me to use the comfort I've received in my trials to be a blessing to people who are going through their own set of trials. Now, obviously, when we get a headache, we aren't automatically thinking, how can I use this headache for the glory of God? I don't know, if you're like me, my first thought is, God, thank you for the good gift of ibuprofen. Right? I mean, we don't think that way. But we are prone to face other trials. We're prone to face other types of suffering. Listen, you don't, have, you don't need me to tell you this. We live in a fallen world, and we are 24-7 surrounded by sinners, which means we are prone to face difficulties. And let me tell you a secret. You carry one of those sinners with you all the time. Just look in the mirror. He or she follows you around day in and day out. Trials are almost a guarantee. As Christians, though, we learn to look for Jesus in the midst of our trials and sufferings. Again, don't go looking for trouble. And I'm not suggesting for a second that you forego the medical treatment because your trial is helping your faith. And I'm not at all suggesting that you become a doormat for all the bullies of this life, but we do at least need to consider where our Concern and care for self falls into our commitment to Christ. Paul's final words, though, remind us of this very profound, important truth. Faithfulness demands vigilance. Faithfulness demands vigilance. Because you can't be steadfast with the Lord and then be willy-nilly with all the potential pitfalls of this life. Because, right? I mean, it's... It's ready for trouble. Walk through your life and you will see that there are so many places and opportunities for falling and failing and stumbling. They're all over the place. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere. Your mind is capable of leading you astray. You can be internally dealing with something and your mind is capable of causing you to stumble. It's like we are walking through a a literal jungle that is full of booby traps and pitfalls. The Bible tells us that Satan's like a roaring lion looking for lunch. And he will take advantage of every opportunity to knock your feet out from under you. And so Paul talks to these leaders at Ephesus. He's really talking to all of us. And he warns them and he warns us to be vigilant, to beware of. What do we need to be aware of? Beware of the perils in our own hearts. He tells them to keep watch over themselves. This should go without saying, but the best regulator of you is your spouse, I mean, is you, okay? The best regulator of you is you. That's why one of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It gets stuck at the end. It stands out to us, doesn't it? Self-control. Self-control is one of those fruits of the Spirit that should manifest itself in our, in our life as Christian. 
Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, and by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Because the truth is this, in so many ways, our spiritual health is just like our physical health. You don't need a fitness coach to come and tell you to get your carcass off the couch, do you? If I only had a personal trainer to come in here and tell me to get off the couch. You don't need that. You lay on the couch long enough and there's something inside of you that says, I probably should get up off this couch, right? I probably should, should get up out of this recliner. You don't need a nutritionist to come and tell you you should probably avoid Krispy Kreme donuts and crystals. And while that may sound like a fine meal to many of us, dinner and dessert right there, that's a date night, gentlemen, that you could go on by yourself. You don't need a nutritionist to tell you that. Your heartburn will speak loud enough. You get it. You understand this. Too much junk or too little exercise is bad for us. We understand that. Listen. You don't need a pastor to tell you to love your spouse. You don't need that. You don't need a Sunday school teacher to tell you not to steal from your workplace. But you do need to keep a close watch. Be vigilant over our own hearts. We also need to be mindful of perils from without. He tells these, the church at Ephesus here, these elders, that savage wolves will come in. There's a constant threat from the outside to the church at Ephesus. Paul understood that in Ephesus there would be seeking to the, those coming in who would lead astray all the people in the church because they were going to be preaching a different gospel. They'd be preaching a Jewish-centered Christianity. Paul knew that there'd be cultish teachings trying to worm their way in. He knew that was a possibility. In this time before the Word of God was established in the New Testament, there were all kinds of, of false gospels and, and false teachings and, and false teachers that were trying to lead people astray. And Paul says, you guys are the elders. You control the teaching. You control the doctrine. Beware, there are savage wolves that will come in. We've seen in modern ministry, there's all kinds of opportunities for external threats to invade. But then we see... Paul talking about threats and perils from within. Be vigilant about those perils from within. He tells the church there, even your own number, men will rise up and distort the truth. How'd those people come about? Well, those people came about because there were those who weren't vigilant over themselves. They weren't mindful of their doctrine. They weren't mindful of what they believed. They weren't mindful of the influences that they were receiving. They embraced false teaching from various sources. And what starts to happen well, that starts to work its way in. It starts to work its way into the vocabulary of a well-meaning Sunday school teacher. A book starts to circulate. It's got some good stuff in it, but it contains a little bit of toxic false teaching. And we see, even in our own day and time, example after example after example of people who started well, who started well, but over the course of time, their sound doctrine, their sound teaching began to evolve into false doctrine and false teaching. I don't need to call names. You know it well enough that I don't have to. But there's some prominent ones. And it always starts slowly, but over the course of time, turns into full-blown corruption. You'll hear people today, especially if they've been trained in like law enforcement or safety, security, that sort of thing, you'll hear people talk about situational awareness. You know what situational awareness is? It means when you walk into a room, some of you guys I know, when you walk into this room or any room, the first thing you do is you look for the exits, right? 
And you do, I know, because I do. I look for the exits. I want to know where people can come in and where people can leave. You're one of those guys like me. You go to a restaurant, my wife will tell you that I sit with my, I don't want to sit with my back to the door. I want to sit where I can see what's happening in that restaurant because if something hits the fan, I want to know because I'm going to be ready to get under the table and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be ready. I want to know. If something is about to happen, I want to be aware. When you are situationally aware, you're constantly assessing your surroundings. You want to know what's happening. And that's what Paul is telling this church here. Here are the risks. It's your job through the power of the Spirit working in you to mitigate those risks. The biggest issue here for Paul is that we also happen to be our own risks. There's the potential for ourselves to be our own worst enemy. And so Paul concludes his time with these leaders. Gets really emotional. Tears are shed. We're told they pray together. We're told that there's some embracing that happens, which means just manly hugs, right? You know, that, that, that shoulder bump, you know, not, not too intimate, not too personal here. But they understand. Tears are shed. This is farewell. They will never see him again. What we have to understand here, though, is that the work goes on. The work goes on. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, only that I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is a hard moment. This is tough. But listen, this is what we do. We work with the end in mind. It's really easy to see the, the church as an enclave of the people that I'm comfortable with and the people I want to spend time with. It's real easy to think of the church as a, as a fortress and it's going to be us and it's us against them. But I think when we think about it that way, we're thinking about it actually incorrectly because our goal is not for it to be us and nobody else. Our goal is to extend those lifeboats and extend that truth of the gospel to as many as we possibly can. And Paul here could have easily said, guys, this is so hard. I want to stay with you. I want to stay with you and build the church at Ephesus. And that would have been a good thing. Man, the church at Ephesus would have gone down in history, right? Instead, he says, I've got a, minute, I've got a mission. I've got a goal. I've got a, a finish line ahead of me. Because he's confident that as sad as this moment is, and as sad as these people that he loves might be, that together we're all working toward eternity. Together we're all working with the end in mind. And folks, this is not the end. This is not the end. The end is when we see that beautiful vision of what heaven looks like with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue joining us as we worship the Lamb on the throne. That's the end that we have in mind. And as followers of Jesus, we have to keep in mind that it is our job today, that God has trusted us today to bring along as many people as possible. That's what motivates Paul. That's what motivates these Ephesian elders to go back to Ephesus and get back to work. And my prayer for our church today is the same, that we're working today, not with today in mind, but that we're working today with the end in mind. So let us look around and see the multitude. And as we see them, let us be faithful to Jesus. And as we see them, let us be faithful to the truth. And as we see them, 
Let us work, work to reach them all with the end always in mind. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his faithfulness as he showed in a really emotional, difficult time. Thank you, Lord, for his courage to face what's going to be the hardest thing in his life. I pray, Father, that we would, we would be faithful. We'd be faithful to you in how we serve the church. We'd be faithful to you in how we treat your word. We'd show our faithfulness in, in Father, how we, how we care for ourselves and how we deny ourselves and take up our cross. The Christian life that we are called to is not supposed to be one of ease and convenience. It's one we're called to a life of difficulty. Jesus even told us that we would face trials and troubles in this world, but to fear not because he's overcome the world. And so, Lord, whatever it is that we may be walking through today, may we look for you in the midst of it. And God, as we do so, may we be vigilant to be on our guard, vigilant as we guard our own hearts, vigilant as we look to the so many different areas around us where there are those who are opposed to the gospel, those who hate the Lord, those who hate your church, those who hate your followers. And even vigilant as we are mindful of the threats within, that we would guard our teaching, our doctrine, our faith, that we would stay true to that which is true and not deviate or branch off into those things that are not. And God, as we, as we work, may we work not just to preserve today, but that we would work with the end in mind, that we would not rest as your church here at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church until our community, until there's nobody left to share the gospel with, until every ear is heard, until everyone has had a chance to receive the good news of Jesus. And so, God, I pray that in these next few moments as we just reflect on the goodness of your word, we reflect on our own faith and our own faithfulness. Help us to see areas where we struggle in disobedience. Help us to see those areas where we come up short. And help us to walk in faithfulness with you each and every day. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.